Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project, and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone. And welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project Podcast. What is Gnosticism? What is Gnosis? Who is Sophia? And what is the Divine Feminine? Today, I have a very special guest, someone I discovered in my own journey back home to myself And as I lifted the veils of illusion for myself, the right readings, books, podcasts came into my world at just the right time. And this particular individual has so much to offer in terms of not only his creative interpretations, that he shares on his own podcast of what Gnosis is, but he also is just a real conduit for creating incredible conversations that open new portals into possibility. And what I love the most about this particular person is his dedication and devotion to his work. So I'm about to introduce you to the host of the Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, which is a popular, very popular show on Gnosticism and Hermeticism, both ancient and modern. Miguel O'Connor, he is the author of the acclaimed Voices of Gnosticism and Other Voices of Gnosticism, as well as the post-apocalyptic vampire epic series, The Dark Instinct Trilogy. His articles have appeared in several publications, including The Gnostic Journal, The Heretic, Mindscape, Reality Sandwich, and Graham Hancock's blog. He's also lectured and appeared at such events as The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, The Alan Eisenberg Show, Magic Radio in Chicago, Rune Soup, Skeptico, The Higher Side Chats, and the Gnostic Countercultures Conference at Rice University. So today he's here with us to talk about how Gnostic mysteries can work in the modern world, as well as to reveal the secret of Gnosis. So without further ado, I would love for you to help me welcome Miguel Connor. Hey, Miguel. Hello. Thank you for having me on. Great to be here. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, Miguel and I just pulled a card, and of course, it was the apocalypsis, which just brings us right to the heart of it all, doesn't it, Miguel? It does indeed. Revelation, the lifting of the veil to see the truth, and especially in this time of uh, chaos and these end times or transition, as I like to call it, this age of Hermes, because that's the god of transitions and doorways, and I think humanity is going through a huge one as the Kali Yuga ends, so uh, an apocalypse is a good thing right now. 
Yeah, it sure is. And, you know, when people started to use that term, you know, I, I had this actually this deep satisfaction because I think while the term was kind of spoken in fear, to me, it really has been the very center of my world and everything that the Revelation Project really means to me, which has been you know, that every step of my journey of awakening has been the lifting of another veil, the lifting of another illusion, the embracing the unknown, embracing the chaos as kind of the great creator, the great energy that, that reorganizes and redistributes and reorients, but first disorients everyone. So I'd love, I'd love to actually just start, you know, with where are we now? And then an expose, a little expose on Gnosticism and what your why is, like why you got involved in this work and why you're so devoted to it. Yeah, it's interesting what you said. The veils reminds me of that great myth of Inanna going into the underworld and the, the dance of the seven veils and the huge trial that she had to go through, but eventually she is redeemed and restored all of us have to go into the underworld and lose lose it all as we would to find that uh, pearl of great price that the gnostics talked about so uh, that's where we are today i think uh, it is an end of an age i always like to go back to another primordial myth and that is the myth of tiamat the great dragon and she is slain by marduk her son and I think the great symbol of that is Marduk represents civilization, the solar powers, the uh, left brain thinking. And this sort of thinking was great for creating, quote unquote, civilization, roads, uh, agriculture, math, all that uh, good stuff. Unfortunately, part of civilization is a, there is a cost to it. And the cost was that the the dragon, the lunar powers, the divine feminine powers had to be slowly or gradually put aside or repressed. And that's, we are right now in a culmination as humans that uh, in, inside and outside, we're so off balance that it is it has caused massive destruction, psychic destruction to our collective consciousness and material destruction to the world. So I always like to say in my podcast, uh, Tiamat needs to rise, this uh, ancient primordial goddess. And it doesn't mean she has to like, kill her son this time. I'd say there has to be a balance between these two forces or else we're just going to fade away into, uh, into nothing or worse. We're going to stick around in a state of complete insanity and psychosis. Right. So that's my uh, sort of big picture, high level uh, view, as I like to say, dream time is coming back to the to that view that sort of more holistic, nonlinear time way that we used to see the world needs to come and balance out the left and the right brain, the, the male and the female, the solar and the lunar, all these powers. And in a way, Gnosticism offered me that view because... Gnosticism posits that we live in a sort of a simulation oppressed by these, these cosmic astral lords called the Archons. And through this spiritual tech called Gnosis, which is a, uh, an intense view of reality and an intense self 
knowledge and journey within, like in Anna, or an astral journey through the stars, but as I always say, the inner, the journey to the stars and the journeys to find our soul is the same journey. The the hermetics who are Gnostics always said, as above, so below. The universe is within us and we are in the universe, the macro and the micro. But So Gnosticism offered me this avenue to understand, to really see the suffering of the world to really see the big picture, to really give me the tools to understand who I am, to go into that inner journey. And as I kept studying it, I realized that also another thing about the Gnostics too is that they were the contraband thieves or merchants of this very ancient goddess worshiping or more um, first temple holistic kind of view of the universe and approach to life and this has been advocated not just by me but by very prominent scholars like a james mcgrath and margaret barker who's probably the when it comes to first temple hebrew religion she is by far the leading expert that the gnostics were carrying this uh, asherah and not religion or mysticism underground through the ages and uh, this is from solomon's temple it's no secret that solomon had uh, worshipped the goddess and other gods in his first temple and that's why he and his son got in trouble and history was sort of rewritten so those are some of the reasons that gnosticism really uh, for my path is really uh helped or clarified or as we're talking about to help me lift the veil of reality yeah well and it it just makes me curious to know about your dark night or like you know like why why it became like the balm for you like is there a a deeper kind of fracturing that had to happen in your own life and were you raised in a particular faith that you kind of had to break out of? Or tell me more about that. Yeah, I was raised Roman Catholic. My mom was was a devout Catholic, but she was very ecumenical and very open-minded about her religion. My father was an atheist, but more of the sort of classic, just leave me alone, I'm living without religion or God kind of atheist. And I was always one of those uh, misfits that was asking the bigger questions of reality, never felt that I fit in in any system or time. I was very artistic inclined, very curious, and that led me into a lot of trouble through my years including, unfortunately, later on, mental issues, addiction, alcoholism, and all that sort of thing. But it also, during times of sobriety and and uh, awareness, it also led me through trying to understand all these different religions and philosophies. So I was sort of a, as I call myself, a spiritual hitchhiker. I, I tried all these clothes, like I would uh, embrace Hinduism for about a year, go to ashrams. I would embrace Islam, New Age. I became a born-again Christian for six months. I just kept trying these things to maybe understand, uh, again, what are the bigger questions in life, nature of evil, suffering, uh, what happens when we die. And none of these seemed to really fit for me because I thought they just weren't very, you might say, intense. I loved them, and I still love, love all religions and mythologies, but none of them seemed to work for me until I started embracing or um, trying some of the Gnostic thoughts and philosophies. 
And that really sort of rung a bell because the Gnostics really took a uh, very hard stance on the nature of reality, on the nature of humanity, how we are in a sort of a trapped in a simulation. They're uh, leaning into a sort of a divine feminine aspect that Christianity did not have or Judaism or Islam or really a lot of the other religions. And it really, you might say, gave me the red pill. And as I continued on my journey with struggles, mental illness, alcoholism, drug addiction, trying different religions, sort of this labyrinth and this pull back and forth, it was really embracing Jungian therapy and psychology that you might say cracked me open once and for all and broke me down completely because Jung, as some of your listeners may know, his foundation was uh, on depth psychology was the Gnostics. He felt that the Gnostics, as he wrote, knew the secrets of the soul. They were his long-lost friends. And he began using, uh, as a base, as a foundation, Gnostic theology and thought for his ideas. And he sort of created a new language for a modern time. He included alchemy, which is part of the Hermetic lore, and other uh, other mythopoeia and uh, occult disciplines. But Jung's ideas really opened it up, or at least gave me the tools to really go inside and find out who I am and why I act a certain way, and really start seeing the really start taking it into a journey of purpose and meaning. Yeah, the purpose and meaning, it's true, you know, it's like when I think of, you know, my experience in that dark night that I had, it was really inspired by this lack of purpose and meaning. And it was literally like, I kind of remember, and I often talk about this with my listeners, almost like this silent prayer or this you know, I didn't even realize that I was doing it until later, which was like, it kind of sounded like, I can't do this anymore. Please don't make me do this anymore, you know? <laughs> and it was like, everything just felt so pointless. And I often say that my cynic was driving the bus of my life. And my father had this great expression, which was that the cynic knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And so... I had become so cynical about everything. And of course, with that cynical point of view or that cynical lens in front of everything, it was just nothing felt a lot like everything kind of just felt dead inside of me. And so I often think about. I was so ready, I think, to go into that underworld experience. Of course, nobody's really ready. They might think they're ready <laughs> until they get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and then like what that phrase coming back to life meant to me after that, you know, it was like to go deeply into that void and meet these parts of myself that I had abandoned along the way. And as you were kind of pointing to these various substances and struggles with mental illness, there's so much of that kind of, I think, for so many people in their journey until they get to the point that they're just, they have kind of, quote unquote, nothing left to lose. And that kind of creates this opening, Like, and you had mentioned the journey of Inanna, I often tell my listeners that 
again, when I kind of came back, and it wasn't until years later that I came across the myth of Inanna. And inside the matrix, you can tend to wonder, like, how is it that that I never knew about these mythologies? How is it that I never knew about these herstories or these so much of what I've now discovered has been really a conversation on the fringes. And I say the fringes, and what I really mean is outside the matrix that have led me like breadcrumbs back home to myself and kind of piecing together this bigger picture that I can now understand and conceptualize. And it's the thing that makes sense to me, not in an intellectual way necessarily, but in more of a a soul, you know, spiritual journey and and how that shows up for me is reveals itself in different conversations with others as I'm kind of piecing it all back together or what I call remembering. Because I think at one time our soul and spirit knows the way, knows knows this. And back to kind of this gnosis and knows this, you know, I really just want to also qualify or define gnosis as distinguished by the conviction. Like I've heard a- about this a couple of different ways, but that matter is evil and that emancipation or liberation comes through gnosis, which really translates to knowing thyself. Was that accurate? Yes, I would say so. I think the central tenet of Gnosticism, and of course Jung would go with this, is uh, know thyself, what's in the temple of Delphi. This is, I tell people, this is the key to everything because A, who we are, our constructs, uh, our ego is sort of guiding and dealing with reality, but that is not all of us. We're, that's just the tip of the iceberg. We are vast divine beings that sometimes in our experiences and consciousness stretch beyond time and space. And to understand who we are and not just sort of a surface understanding, you know, I am this sign and I like this type of ice cream and my favorite football team is this. And, but your true deep self, that uh, what the Gnostics call the divine spark, the, the shard of infinity that is within you, that is where all your answers happen because, as you would say, your soul has your purpose, has your destiny, and has everything else that you need to really be part of the restoration of the universe. So that that would certainly, in the Gnostic texts and in their exercise, yeah, it's all about contemplation, going inward, understanding everything that you are, and everything that you are not, because we are all uh, basically for program robots we are uh programmed by our culture by our religion by our parents uh by our businesses governments friends and all that and what we become is simply a construct but uh as jung said we didn't come to this world to be good we came to be ourselves mm. uh, he further said uh, the experience of the self is always a defeat for the ego. And these are very, I think, these are very powerful words. And uh, I think, yeah, the idea that matter is evil, I, 
I don't know if it's not, it's here to keep us down because that's the nature of the universe and to keep us asleep and to keep us obedient. But at the end of the day, our home is beyond the stars, as the Gnostics would say, with the ultimate consciousness, the undivided consciousness, which again, paradoxically resides within us. It is the divine spark, and it is up to us to break down the veil and try to uh, finally find out who we are. I always tell people, each one of us, by definition, has an amazing purpose and a destiny that is part of the restoration of the universe. No exceptions. This includes animals, every living thing. There is sort of a back and forth between the powers of light and darkness. And if we can find out who we truly are, which is a very painful thing, it is uh, like Inanna, a sort of uh, removing all, all our veils and just sitting in the underworld for a while until we find uh, that destiny, that pearl of great price, then uh, everything, uh, then it's an amazing experience. The Gnostics, despite their edgy view on the universe and humanity and all that, uh, was a religion, was an ecstatic religion. It was a shamanistic religion. It was a religion about transformation and wholeness and really a, a movement of pure and unadulterated joy. Yeah, I love what you said, too, about evil. It's not so much that it's evil, it's just the nature of, it's the nature of this world. So, so say more about that. Yeah, I mean, here's, here's an example, because the Gnostic texts are really edgy. They're yeah. ultra, they're like Game of Thrones sometimes. They're really <laughs> you would edgy. think most people would gravitate towards it, you know, but... Yeah. Well, sometimes we, we've been trained to think that religion should be or spirituality should be a nice, sanitized thing. But uh, no, it, it's a brutal thing. And their texts, again, are, are very violent, very pornographic. They're intense, but there is a, a sense of joy and ecstasy because... Uh, when you in the tone of the writer and in the prayers and in the, in the whenever Sophia comes down in certain parts and has to awaken the souls and carry them away or the the divine Christ comes to, to share gnosis. So there's this dichotomy in there. And even I mean, this is something about being spiritually honest is that you face the horror and the holiness of the universe. Joseph Campbell talked a lot about this, and he was a Jungian, that, uh, as I often say, nature is my salvation, but it is my destruction too. It's mm. uh, the yin and the yang. Right. To uh, hold the light and the darkness e equally in front of you so that you may find a middle path. And uh, despite, for example, the Cathars, the medieval Gnostics who had this really dark view that the universe was ruled by Satan and matter was evil and all that. But when you saw them, they were called the good people. They were beloved by their communities. They were some of the most happy Christians walking around. They, they were pacifists. They didn't eat meat. They were beloved by everybody they touched. So they wow. were showing that they had been transformed. Same with the Manichaeans, who were also a sort of late antiquity medieval group who, who had this very Zoroastrian view of two forces fighting each other and uh, we need to escape the world and all that. But they were probably one of the most eco-friendly groups ever 
that's ever walked this planet. Again, they were vegetarians. They wouldn't even walk on grass because they felt they were hurting the spirits, the the soul of the grass. They wouldn't they wouldn't even pluck fruit from trees. They would wait till the trees dropped like the Jains. And they wow. were some of the most beautiful, artistic, friendly groups that you can. So this catharsis of understanding the light and the darkness of seeing nature for what she truly is is liberating. I mean, we often forget that we have a myopic view, right? We, for example, look at the goddess Venus. Most people today go, well, Venus is the goddess of love. I'm like, uh, you are forgetting that <laughs> Venus was also the goddess of war. She had a dark side. Right. Same with Ashira. Mm-hmm. Ashira had a knot, who was this extremely ultra-violent, hypersexual, cannibalistic goddess. So it's seeing, again, the light and the dark together to see the universe for what it is in all honesty and courage and seeing yourself too. All of us have a shadow. Jung said, uh, uh, what did he say? A modern man can't see God because he doesn't look low enough. In other words, all of us have this dark shadow. We have this trauma. We have this insane pain and a capacity for evil. But they all deserve a seat at the table. They need to be brought out into the light of consciousness so that it could be part of our individuation and dissipate and part of our integration. So um, I know a, a bit of a Byzantine answer, and sorry. No, but I, I love that. I mean, it's it, it really occurs. We just keep forgetting over and over and over again that it all gets to belong and that that's actually to the... The whole point here is to kind of, as I always say to my listeners, kind of say yes to the mass that is Mm -hmm. both our human and our divine, that that is the totality. Back to kind of, you can't have one without the other. So like the universal one includes all of it. And Mm -hmm. so we're, we're just having to experience that in a multitude of ways over and over and over again and hope that it sticks you know for like <laughs> any period of time but i think for me that's what i'm doing when i talk about disrupting the trance right is like creating sure. these bigger openings for us to kind of hold the tension in the middle perfect yeah well said yeah don't suppress, go down. Uh, right. I always, yeah, I mean, your, your shadow, your traumatic child, your pain, all deserve a seat at the table. They all are talking to you every second of the day, and they just want to be heard. Same as the archon, same as the spirits in nature. They just want to be heard. I mean, if we, like Philip K. Dick, if the universe is made of information, that information will help us, will save us. Well, then we need to listen better because the universe, our soul, everything's talking at once and everything deserves to be listened to. I love that. Okay. So we just kind of touched on the Argons. I want to go back there in a minute. But first, I would love for you to just explore the questions with the listeners around Sophia, like who is Sophia and the Divine Feminine as it relates to the Gnostics? Yeah, that's quite a question because uh, they were very, there was a lot about the divine feminine from uh, the ultimate mother, Barbalo. Uh, in, in the Gnostic cosmology, the supreme consciousness decide it's not going to be undivided. It's going to try to understand itself. So as soon as it says, who am I? There's a split. 
there's consciousness and the experience. You have that in Hinduism with uh, Shiva and uh, Prakriti or Shakti. But in Gnosticism, the, the Supreme Spirit asks, who am I? And comes out this being called Barbella, who is female. And they have this interplay or this sort of sexual intercourse or this. And every time he asks a question, it creates an aspect of God or the supreme consciousness, uh, goodness, perfection. And it keeps going. And the Gnostics call these aspects of God the aeons, which were personhoods or potentials of the supreme consciousness. So you already have the great mother and father at the top, and these aeons are emanating. Uh, until the last one is called Sophia. She is the wisdom of God, incarnates wisdom of God. And that's where a lot of times things go wrong because wisdom is wisdom, right? Wisdom has to know. Wisdom has to uh, self-actualize by experiencing everything there is. I mean, as Rudolf Steiner said, wisdom is just crystallized pain. So wisdom is created and she rebels against the natural order of the divine realm and is eventually cast out. And this is, again, not so rare in ancient times. Uh, Cybele, the great mother of ancient times, she started out as a male goddess and she wanted to explore. So she castrates herself to get thrown out of heaven. And this is all part of Plato's, the soul being coming down, uh, the soul's high adventure. The soul is rebellious and sh the soul needs to go experience. So Sophia is cast down this aeon into the world. And because of her grief and her pain, these become to project themselves outward. They manifest as the universe, as the Gnostics said. The oceans and the rivers are the tears of Sophia and so forth. And the universe is created through Sophia's grief. Again, wisdom is crystallized pain. And then eventually she gives birth to a child who is the supreme being of this universe, often associated with the God of the Old Testament. And this being takes over and begins to uh, steal Sophia's divine essence and create the world and create humanity as its slaves and so forth. So eventually you get this sort of grand theater play, this mythological play of Sophia and the Demiurge trying to fight each other. And we are basically those who are awakened through Gnosis are part of Sophia's uh, rescue operation. And she often uh, will have a Christ comes down from uh, the divine realm to help her out because she is still off balance. And she is the anima and Christ is the anima. She is wisdom and Christ is the logos. And together they work together to sort of restore the universe. And as I mentioned, Monica, this is not, the Gnostics didn't just come out with this stuff again, just out of thin air. They were drawing from the great traditions like Cybele, Inanna, Plato's soul, the adventure of Plato's soul into matter, and also Jewish wisdom tradition. Mm -hmm. If you look at Jewish wisdom tradition, the, the, the ancient goddess Asherah was a goddess of wisdom, and she was eventually sort of suppressed out of uh, Hebrew tradition and until uh, Judah, he, the Hebrew people became the Jews after the exile. But you still find wisdom in many parts of the Bible, including the book of Proverbs. Uh, you find it in the book of Sirach. You find an Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus. And this is not sort of a... Uh, 
This is truly an individual. She has an ontological aspect. She is there creating with God. She is there creating by herself. She is supreme. Uh, what does the book of Sirach say? The first human being never finished comprehending wisdom, nor will the last succeed in fathoming her. For deeper than the sea are her thoughts and her counsels than the great abyss. So she is a supreme being, powerful being, but... She has been cast down and rejected by humanity, which, of course, is a great theme, right? Humans want wisdom, but we don't. We never accept it. Even the book of Enoch says wisdom came down and was rejected by the humans, and she had to go back to the clouds until her time was right. So this is drawn, too, from also the, the Jewish wisdom tradition. And so you have this, uh, and again, from the ancient primordial myths of Ashira and Cybele and Inanna, this forgotten goddess Tiamat, who's been sort of cast down, and now through Gnosis, she can return to the world and hopefully restore the universe, or at least wake up those who want to wake up. So in essence, that's more or less the, the myth of Sophia uh, for you in a sort of, in a, you know, a brief summary. Oh my goodness. Okay. So, and of course I have the question of like, so is her time right now? So she came down before, right? And she was rejected by the humans. What I'm understanding is that, you know, kind of the, the name of the game is back to that kind of rescue operation that you were alluding to is like, the more we can actually pursue this gnosis or this n knowing thyself. Right allowing all of our parts to come to the table, the more awakened we become and the more capable we become of maybe having this be the Sophia century, right? This is the century of wisdom uh, where we, we will actually achieve that. Is that, is that correct? I hope so, but uh, it's hard to say. I mean, the one thing about the Gnostic texts is, A, they're very... They are apocalyptic. The veil is lived and you see the divine plan through uh, reality or linear time, but they're very ahistorical. Mm -hmm. uh, there's never any mention of a utopia or anything like that there. And in fact, it's interesting in um, the secret book of John, which has a huge myth about Sophia and the archons and all that. Jesus, the it's Jesus has a talk with the apostle John, and Jesus tells him this is what happened with Sophia and everything else, and uh, the Nephilim, and he gives him this huge grand story of creation, and John is like, oh, okay, so what happens at the end? And Jesus basically says, you know, your more choice. to be revealed, Every, right? No, he simply says it's your choice. Every soul can choose to wake up keep in the cycles of life, break through, or there are souls who decide, I'm just going to stay in matter and I will become matter. So Jesus mm -hmm. says, it's up to every individual. And I've always liked the idea of that uh, an apocalypse or a change of the ages. Some people will see it, some people will don't, some people will uh, evolve into different uh, realities or dimensions, and some will stay in the material world. Again, it's a uh, each of our souls has a choice at the end of the day. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I love the way that you just kind of came full circle on that. And, you know, and it's bringing up for me too, Paul, is it Paul Levy's work? Paul Levy? I never know how to pronounce his yeah. last name. I call him Levy. Yeah, okay. So, 
just that idea of Wetiko that is yeah. also a very indigenous concept that has to do with our cannibalism of it's it's almost like well there's so many things coming in right now but this aspect of ourselves that is blind to our own it's that blind spot or that what he calls the virus of the mind which is where i think the matrix is like where we're trapped in this matrix and we can't see kind of the forest through the trees i don't know if you have a better way of describing it but no that's uh- no, that's it. It's the mind virus that, yeah, Paul Levy talks about, John Lamplash, a whole bunch of uh, modern mystics talk about it. The Gnostics would call it the uh, the counterfeit spirit. And that's sort of the fake part of us that's created by our soul. It's a fake soul. And it is there to, as you said, lead us into material delights, ignorance, violence, all that part. It's almost uh, in one text, the Pista Sophia, it's constructed right before our soul creates. And it is, again, this parasitical part of us. Carlos Castaneda talked a lot about that, the predator and this this being that exists to lead us astray. That's uh, that's uh, interesting. The Gnostics always created probably the best cosmic villains, Bond villains, because these these beings not not only control the stars, and therefore they control the cosmos, destiny, fate, all these things. But they also are embedded in our minds. They are creatures that are both again very hermetic, right? As above, so below. They control the heavens, but they are also within us to lead us away because at the end of the day, they are vampiric. They are like the matrix feeding off the energy, not of our brain, like in the matrix, but they're feeding off of that divine spark within us that sustains the universe. And they're very addicted to, they're very mechanistic, oppressive, but as we talk, they are just, they're, well, no point in getting angry at them. They're part of the natural order and it's up to us to break, break the spell or break out from them. Right. And I, and again, I'm glad you said that, right? Because I was going to say like, so it's, they're not bad. They're part of the natural order. Again, it's like the leading astray. It's almost like the challenge creates the opportunity, like in every instance to kind of like break free from whether I'm going to call it the trance or mm-hmm. we call it the matrix or, you know, so it's, it's like this opportunity to just embrace all of it. So it's like the more questions you ask, the more questions come come up. Always, until, always. Right? Until some point you're just kind of like exhausted with, with the mind-boggling of it all. And I think that's kind of the point. And so... Yeah, yeah. You get into a point where even Jung said, when it comes to symbols and dreams... You're not supposed to decipher them at the end of the day. You're supposed to experience them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and at some point you'll pivot and you'll, you, you're talking about archons and doing all this meditation prayer and, you're, and you'll realize I'm experiencing life now. I'm experiencing the myth. For me, trying to understand Sophie is one thing, but experiencing her through her myth and her fall and her presence in the world and all these stories that's what works. That's where I feel freedom and ecstasy and purpose too. I am guided much better to help others. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, one thing 
we have to realize about humans is one, we are constructs and we are legion. We are made up of many different things. There's probably no authentic self or the authentic self, as the Buddha said, uh, cannot be known, only experienced. Uh, the other two, the other thing is that our minds do not work with facts. Even as I mentioned how Marduk, the Lord of civilization rules us. The truth is humans are guided by stories. That's how our mind works. I mean, you somebody can tell you over and over, you know, don't do drugs, don't be mean to your siblings, blah, blah, blah. And we're not going to listen. But if we listen to some grand story, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, that really hits us hard because we are made, of, our minds are made of stories. That's what separates us from other life forms. It doesn't make us more superior, but that's just how our minds are made. Patterns, stories, grand, grand dramas. That's how we become fully human and in the moment. Yeah, I love that. And I often talk about stories, and I'm sure you know Charles Eisenstein's work. He talks about this time, this apocalypse being the space between stories. Oh, love it. It's, it is. It's beautiful. And if you're not familiar with his work, I'd love to turn you on to his work. You actually earlier said as well, the dream world, right? You talked about the dream world. And I have the honor of working with a woman by the name of Lynn Twist, who wrote a book called The Soul of Money. And she works with the Ashwar people in the Amazon rainforest. And, you know, there's this concept or this invitation from the indigenous people who brought her to the Amazon rainforest. Uh, she was actually called there through a vision. And when she got there, the Ashwar people came out of the forest and said, we dreamed you here. Wow. And that began kind of the second part of her story, which is so beautiful. But as part of that story, she came back with this concept that they wanted her to tell the people of the modern world to begin to dream a new dream so that we don't end up in, you know, clear cutting all of the forests and destroying the very thing that gives us life, you know, and that this idea of the dream world, the imagination, the space between stories is our opportunity to actually awaken from the trance, awaken from Wetico, to disrupt, to see, to remember that we are the storyteller, you know, and to really conceive a new vision for humanity. So, you know, it just kind of interestingly plays into all of this, because I think that there's this way that as human beings, we compartmentalize and then there's dreams and there's myths and there's stories and there's reality. And yet the bigger picture is more science fiction than, than <laughs> science fiction could even conceive. You know, it's like, it's such a, um, an interesting mix, but even right. The, the story of, Jesus, which is the next place I want to go with you, because we're just having small talk here today. So I wondered if, you know, you could talk about Jesus as it relates to the Gnostic Jesus, and also that story or allegory, or what are your thoughts on 
on that and also how Jesus has been exploited, I will say that, in this culture. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I love what you just said, and it makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, the Gnostic texts and the Hermetic texts are always, uh, definitely imagination is important. Even the Neoplatonists too, because it always talks about contemplate this, contemplate yourself, mm-hmm. contemplate the world. And sometimes you're reading this text, it's like, oh my God, this teacher really, this hierophant one. But that was part of their vibe too. And in fact, William Blake, who was uh, very influenced by the Gnostics, his poetry and cosmologies are extremely Gnostic, as scholars have noted. He believed imagination was the divine spark. It was our capacity to to fix the universe, literally change the universe, and the Gnostics and the Hermetics would agree 100%. So then comes Jesus, who, as uh, I mentioned before, is the Logos, the, the reason of God, the imagination of God who comes to this world to fix things with Sophia, wisdom and reason, divine reason, always need to work together. And masculine and feminine, yes? Bingo, yeah, anima and animus, the ba- yes. the great balance that we, we need to work on. I mean, this summer, when I worked with my Jungian advisor, it was my dreams and my taste in music, everything was just feminine, feminine. I couldn't, I couldn't, and I don't, I'm getting to a point where I don't fight it. If I, I don't care if people think I'm weird. <laughs> Did you at first, you were like, no, it's not feminine. Okay. No, 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 no. I, 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 as she always tells me, lean into it. Just yes. go, don't even fight. Lean in. So it was all my dreams were all about women. I could, I, all I could do was listen to female singers from Alanis Morissette to Dolly Parton. And, and I realized my anima is speaking to me. She wants something and she wants me to look at something. So I just went with it, meditating, dream journaling, uh, active imagination, and bang. Suddenly in the fall, I, I, I realized, aha, the the revelation came, my anima came out and said, now we are more at balance. Now we can move forward. And my anima, my anima, anima, anima said, okay, yes, this is great. And suddenly all these revelations and purposes and ideas have come out. But, but anyway, before I I got outside, yeah, Jesus, Jesus and the Gnostic gospel. Yeah. For your audience, just lean into, lean into the crazy. Exactly. Yeah, you have to. Your, your soul has a better plan for your life than you do. The gods know better. Yeah. Sophia Don't knows better. Don't try to better. make sense of it. No, no. Like I said, yeah, the ego is defeated because uh, the self is coming out. The self can only be experienced. It cannot be known. But it's an amazing experience once you hit your stride. And of course, the archons will try to hit you. It's just, it's a give and take. But Jesus, it's a very different Jesus. And orthodoxy, obviously, Jesus is a being who came to save us from our sins. And his death is sort of paying the price and belief in him will give you salvation. In Gnosticism, it's a different Jesus. He comes to give you information. He gives you gnosis. He gives you uh, the information that will wake you up. He gives you the rituals that you will need, these ecstatic shamanistic rituals that so you can take out-of-body flights, go inward, heal people. Healing is very important, both mental and physical healing. Anybody can be a healer. So this Jesus always comes to wake you up, and you see that uh, the most uh, popular one would be the Gospel of Thomas, which is 114 sayings of Jesus, where he's just giving you this important information. He's sort of a, a 
an ancient hierophant very much in the way of Hermes Trismegistos or these other wise mystics of ancient times. And so that is a, a huge difference. And he is often very otherworldly. He's not human in any way. He appears as a human or he takes into a human body. But they had discussed the nature of Jesus was highly debated and discussed with early Christians. So they had different stances of who is Jesus. What I like about also the Gnostic Jesus is, and this has been written by Jeff Kripal and others, is that he's a very cool and approachable Jesus. You know, the Jesus in the New Testament doesn't laugh once. He's kind of distant. The Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels laughs all the time. Sometimes he's mocking, sometimes he's just happy, and he's always like, joking around. He's walking around. It says in the gospel, Phil, he always has women around him. He's kind of a cool stud. He's walking, <laughs> even though Mary Magdalene is always like, you know, his girl. That's the, the one that he loves the most of everybody in this world. So he's more of a cool guy who laughs, who gives you good information, but he's very comforting. I mentioned the secret book of John which has John after the crucifixion, John, he's mocked by the Pharisees and he runs into a cave. Then Jesus appears and Jesus says, this is who I am. And Jesus appears as a woman, a child, a monster. Jesus is like, I am everything. I am, you know, I am a representation of anything. And John is like, well, why did you leave us, Jesus? And he goes, he, he laughs and he goes, John, John, haven't you learned a single thing I taught you? Everything's Okay. But since you still have doubts, I'm going to give you the story of Sophia, and he gives them this long story of Sophia. So it's a very different Jesus than uh, what we have in Orthodoxy. But at the end of the day, what did Albert Schweitzer say in the quest for the historical Jesus? The Jesus we are looking for is the Jesus we are going to find. Ultimately, mm -hmm. as the Logos, he's a projection of something about us that we need to see. Oh my gosh, I love that. The Jesus we are looking for is the Jesus we will find. Or the Jesus we will need, yeah. It's as Depeche Mode sang your own personal Jesus. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. All right. So I want to circle back to something else, which is that that Gospel of Thomas was excluded, correct? Yes, it was. Uh, ultimately, it was. As uh, I, I know, there's this strange belief that the Council of Anicia was about the Bible, which it was not. It was really about uh, the nature of the Trinity. Constantine was there, but he was bored. It wasn't as sort of Dan Brown game changer that we think of. But through other councils, through other uh, through other meetings, as Christianity became uh, commercialized or corporatized. Certain books were allowed, and certain books were eventually cast out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Gospel of Thomas was cast out. Most of the all the works in the Nag Hammadi Library, that Gnostic treasure trove that was discovered in Upper Egypt in 1945, was excluded. There were some Gospels that were eventually changed, like the Gospel of Peter was once part of the Bible, and it got thrown out. But yeah, the Gnostic Gospels were rejected, and a lot of them were lost through in history. Okay. By design, because, you know, they probably contained too much <laughs> liberation and levity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, I want to also have you dip more deeply into the Archons. Is that right? Is that, am I pronouncing yeah. it correctly mm -hmm. yeah 
Yeah, the Archons or Wetiko or uh, many names, alien parasites, extraterrestrials. Again, they're really good Bond villains because, as uh, Eric Davis, scholar uh, Eric Davis said, uh, the Gnostic texts crackle with a sci-fi sensibility with universes of light and super mundane creatures and very Lovecraftian uh, descriptions of uh, the Archons. And so it works really well even in our modern times because you can take it any level you want do you think that archons is a mental disease that you have of course do you think the archons are your the bad parts of your ego yes of course do you think they're supernatural beings sure do you think they're extraterrestrials certainly they do uh john lamb lash has made a very good case for it so they have a very multi-dimensional aspect just like sophia does you can look at sophia in so many levels but the Archons are basically, as I mentioned, once uh, Sophia gives birth to this uh, Demiurge, who also has many names, Yaldabao, Saklas, and so forth. Uh, some Gnostics associated the Demiurge with the god Kronos or Osiris, any sort of creator, managerial god. They associated with the Demiurge, and he's running the universe, he's feeding upon us, and his underlings are the Archons, so these beings that are created to sort of uh, rule certain planetary heavens, rule aspects of our brain, and so forth. And again, the Gnostics were not, they, were, they weren't just pulling it out of their butts, if you would, because this was already in the air. Look at the Book of Enoch. What does the Book of Enoch tell us? These watchers come, and they start uh, giving humanity these gifts, but they also start mating with the women, and then suddenly they create a hybrid race, but they're sort of controlling things. When you look at Paul, Paul the Great, when you look at the letters of Paul and you take off your Sunday glasses and what they taught you, what is Paul talking about? We preach the wisdom of the ages. He's talking about Sophia as a person. He's not talking mm -hmm. about it. He's not being so. And he's talking about the God of this world. He uses the word archon. The prince, when he, whenever he says princess, it's actually Greek for archon in the original Greek. The powers and principalities, the wickedness in high places. You look at the epistle of John. It says the, the evil one now controls this universe. In the gospel of Mark, what, when Jesus takes Satan up to the mountain, what does he tell him? I rule every kingdom of this world. So there was this tradition in Judaism, even in paganism, that there was these lesser beings that were controlling the universe, but they were botching things up. They were just like, you know, typical bureaucrats. Oh, we <laughs> voted for these guys or God, and they just screwed things up. And now we need something to fix this, which would be Jesus. And so, and so this was this was in the air. And we can even look further in time. Look at the myth of Prometheus. What happens? Uh, Zeus needs some slaves. So Zeus tells Prometheus, create these poor slaves, which is us. And Prometheus and Athena, we forget that in a lot of the myths. Again, we have Athena, who's Sophia, Prometheus, who's the Logos. They, they help create humanity. Zeus is being abusive. So Prometheus, with the help of Athena, Athena says, this is where the fire is in Olympus. He gets the fire and humans are fine. And of course, Zeus has to punish them, send, do things that the Demiurge does, pain, forgetfulness, all the stuff that these gods do upon us. Uh, you have it in Zoroastrianism where this grand drama of, of uh, Araman and Ahura Mazdam, these two forces always at each other. You have it probably, as I tell people, 
the first version of the matrix wasn't the 1999 wachowski film it was plato's allegory of the cave because what right. happens in the other we are in this cave and there's these beings behind us who are throwing shadows and we're looking at the wall and we think that's reality and one person is allowed to leave to wake up to come back and give information so these ideas were in the air the gnostics were simply the ones who sort of uh, it sort of uh, reached the peak with the Nos. They drew it all in together and said, all right, here's the grand drama. But they, again, this was a very sensible view in all traditions that was happening at the time. Which is why it cracks me up that conspiracy theory is a thing. <laughs> right? It's just like... Well, what did Jimmy What did Jimmy Dore call conspiracy theory? Uh, spoiler alert. It <laughs> seemed to be coming true all the time. I mean, we now oh know Kennedy. That nobody really with any half a brain believes Kennedy was killed by one person, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Get the popcorn, right? Get the popcorn. What's going to happen next? Yeah, conspiracy is just history plus time. I mean, I know... Yeah. People are still debating who was Jack the Ripper. There's still people debating who killed Alexander the Great. They think Aristotle did it. So conspiracies are just like, as I tell people, it should be its own like discipline. It's a, it it's a, a part of psychology or something. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. It sure is. So interesting. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I'm going to go a little bit circuitous. Oh, one more thing, if you don't mind. Very important. You're talking about uh, the Christ. You look for the Christ we deserve. The Gnostics themselves always said, look, uh, in the Gospel of Philip and others, you do not worry about the resurrection when you die. The resurrection happens now. If you see Christ, you must become Christ. You are Christ. So their view was different than the Orthodox uh, because Orthodox stance because they felt that we could become living Christ while we were alive in this world. And we could have all the powers of Jesus. Right. I read something recently. I think it was Richard Rohr that said, like, we forgot that Christ is not Jesus's last name, right? It's, <laughs> it's right. to be the Christed, title. right? To, to, mm-hmm. no, anointed, anointed, right? Initiated, anointed, however, however you want to use that, but that that remembering is actually that resurrection correct right what did plato call it anamnesis loss of forgetfulness or what did he say all learning is remembering which i love that quote yes all learning is remembering where i wanted to go was actually back to mary magdalene and i wanted to talk a little bit more because of course you and i were chatting before the episode but so much of my work is in this realm of disrupting the trance of unworthiness and really guiding women to reveal and remember the truth of who we are. And of course, the trance of unworthiness is really all of our journey. But there's a specific way that I think women are kind of microdosed these messages of unworthiness a lot of that due to patriarchal religions. I loved that you said earlier that you love all religions and mythologies, and there's so much fertile ground there, and there's also so much damage that's been done, right? There's so much 
you know, that's been kind of done to women and the suppression of women and back to kind of this story and Sophia kind of falling from grace and now needing to make this journey. Yeah, women are, that's where we, that's where I am stuck or I'm trying to figure things out. Women are connected to nature. You can't have one without the other. So as we humans, we need to find out, do we suppress nature? What do we do? I mean, nature, what we see outside is not nature. It's, you know, when we walk to parks and all that, it's suppressed, right. tame nature. It's not real nature. Unbound nature has uh, more has opportunities. You know, people in the Amazons have great medicines and psychedelics and all that. But anyway, that's a question I'm thinking. I know there's a balance. There's always a solution. But yeah, women are always connected to nature. So if as, as long as we are suppressing nature, we're going to suppress women and vice versa. So that's the great uh, the great answer right there. Yeah, well it's it brings up for me, you know, I've been really working with this theory for multiple years now that you know, if we were to kind of go back to the mature feminine archetypes, you know, that there's this kind of journey stemming from the archetype of let's call her in this case the eternal child who then becomes kind of the wounded child or not, but then almost heads into maidenhood and ends up stuck in wounded maiden right. as an un uninitiated right before she would have reached, quote unquote, the mother archetype. The mother archetype being she who is full of herself, she who knows her own sufficiency, she who is deeply in touch with not only her love of self, but also deeply in touch with her intolerance for harming nature or children, or when a woman is full of herself and knows her own sufficiency, she does not tolerate what is happening in the world. And so it's become very apparent to me that there's this work to be done in this realm of the archetype of the wounded maiden. Because if you were to look at how this culture kind of suspends women in this state, it now being women's responsibility, it's like not our fault what happened to us, but it is our right. responsibility, just like it's everybody's to, to disrupt this trance. Right. And so, but I've really seen it as this journey, actually, well, I'll go back and say that I have this theory that there is a point when we're in our maidenhood where we are fully embodied. We know who we are. We are in touch with the potential and the essence of who we are. And it's a deeply felt feeling of like, I can do anything. And from birth, women are kind of microdosed these messages about the feminine. And so here she is on the threshold of initiation into, you know, what would be this rite of passage that would take her from maidenhood into mother, you know, where in indigenous cultures, actually, those 
women who are full of themselves, the kind of mother archetype would be kind of waiting on the other side of that bridge. But they're actually over here with us in Wounded Maiden. We're all kind of stuck and the bridge has been burnt, so to speak. And we we escaped our bodies because our bodies became emotionally uninhabitable and we exploded up into our mind, which is where we're like trapped in this kind of trance of unworthiness. And actually, I see the journey as kind of coming back to the body, back to all of the places that we were taught were sinful, wrong, shameful. So you start with the creation story, the story of Eve, or however many stories or or messages that have been microdosed to us. And you look at, you know, even just the way that we see the feminine or our experience, our own mothers had been patriarchalized. And so, what our experience or our model is for what the true, divine, strong, feminine, sacred, integrated, fully embodied feminine is, is like the stuff of legends, like we don't actually see it in the world. So for me, and, and I've been able to find it as, as I've continued to remember, and I've been able to find women who are fully embodied in that way. And I think we're healing a lot of these uh, wounds, which is the sisterhood wound, the mother wound, and coming kind of back, looking at those shadows, the, the wounded child, and starting to remember ourselves whole and of course, the journey of the feminine or the heroine's journey includes the masculine. And so that's also, I think, another part of this is that our journey actually encompasses and embraces and then integrates the masculine. And so it just seems to me that that is where wisdom happens is in this triad of, you know, the masculine, the feminine, and the eternal child, that it's actually remembering the eternal child and and helping to heal the child that activates kind of the union between the masculine and the feminine and brings that levity and that playback where there's like that wholeness again. So anyway, I've been kind of working with that theory. I couldn't have said it better. That's it. That's the map. <laughs> yeah. Well, it just, yeah, go ahead. This... Well, obviously, I'm not a woman. I've worked on my anima, so it's much better. But there, I would suggest to your readers from a Gnostic standpoint, and yes, the Gnostics had many uh, female protagonists. In fact, unlike most sects in the world, a lot of the, their sects were founded by women. Uh, Salome, Miriam, all that. Even the Mandeans who exist today were founded by a woman. And women could hold places in the in the church services. They could hold leadership places. Again, Mary Magdalene is the perfect example. She was a... Well, hell, we could get pregnant without men, couldn't we? <laughs> that is true. Yes, there is, a, there is that work. If we look at the infancy gospel of James, where uh, there was a, a sect of women who could get themselves pregnant uh, in the temple. This might have existed in the temple of Jerusalem as an ancient tradition. But you gave birth to a messiahs and women only. But anyway, there's this book by a scholar, Celine Lilly, which I've had on the show, and it's called The Rape of Eve. Mm. And it really covers what you've covered because in the Gnostic Gospels, especially the, the three creation ones, there are, there are certain commonalities. One is that Sophia 
comes down as and becomes Eve. She's the one who has to wake him has to wake up Adam, who doesn't realize he's a slave to the demiurge, and she 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 is there to wake him up. She's an avatar of Sophia, if you would. And all these texts, once the archons find out, they bring everything against her. They insult her. They steal her voice. They continually rape her, gang rape her. It's brutal. It really is brutal. And Celine shows the different cycles of psychology. For example, they're raping her and part of her goes into a tree and she says, ah, this is disassociative disorder 2,000 years ago. It's uh, over and over. But at the end, Eve succeeds. She, she, she's able to get it together. And she basically looks at Adam and said, you know, I've been through hell, but I'm here to wake you up. We're going to win this battle because uh, they are evil or they're mechanistic. And Adam says, all right, let's do it. And together, Adam and Eve begin the restoration of humanity. So I would suggest for your readers to read The Rape of Eve. It's a beautiful book. Or get Celine on your podcast. She's she's an amazing scholar. Oh my God, I would love that. She's amazing. And she could speak more to the, again, to, to women. The other one too, and also Celine was part of this book, but there's a Gnostic text called Thunder Perfect Mind. Yes, I love that. Yes, and it is when it comes to the divine feminine, it's it's probably the most perfect one because it's a it's this this uh, this goddess figure, probably Sophia or Eve, and she's talking about who she is, and she just lays all her cards on the table. I am the whore. I am the holy one. I am the mother. I have been outcast. I am you know, and she just goes on this incredible, beautiful story. And I've told people in my groups, you know get thunder perfect mind and if there's a storm outside just recite it just go outside in the rain and recite it pray it because it is extremely powerful and one of the most beautiful some of scholars said one of the most beautiful poems in the history of humanity even ridley scott did a commercial for prada talking about thunder perfect mind that you your listeners can find on youtube but uh thunder would be probably the best way and it again the interesting thing is that she lays her cards on the table, how she's been brutalized, but how she's, she also mentions all her victories, all the things. But at the end of the day, she is in control. She realized I'm the one in control at the end of the day. All these things that happened to me have made me into who I am. Into who I am. And for men, we have the same thing, but people don't see. In the Gospel of John, the one thing that is true is that Jesus is in control. He set the divine drama. He knows how it's going to end, but he's in control. There's scenes where they try to grab him and he just goes through a wall. He's the storyteller of this all, but it's a necessary story for the logos, the word that became flesh. So he's in control and this divine drama is for his own self-actualization, just as it is for ours. What did that scholar say? The Gnostic saga, you could just put in two words or one sentence. It's uh, how God went crazy and became us and how we reversed the course. So you have, you have the logos in the Gospel of John, this d- drama, of, and Jesus is going, I am. I, he's telling yes, us, yes, I am. We, I are, am. we are him. But the feminine answer is Thunder Perfect Mind, because it's the same thing. She understands I'm in control, I'm the storyteller, but I have to go down and get 
brutalized, rejected, but I also will rule as a goddess. I will also reach these incredible heights, but I will fall. So I would suggest your your your, your listeners to uh, check out Thunder Perfect Mind. They won't forget it. Oh my God. Yeah, right. It's like we're all having this experience of of knowing ourselves as God. And it's all happening at once. Remember, dream time, linear time right. is a lie. R- this is all happening is at once. You are being crucified at the same time you are. Mary Magdalene is holding you in the garden at the same time. You know, that's what Thunder is saying. This is all happening to me at once. That's right. That's right. Oh my goodness. What a rich conversation, Miguel. Thank you so much. My goodness. This has just been like deeply nourishing and my mind is like, you know, completely blown. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. It was so much fun. Yeah. I know it sounds strange. We're talking about these dark Gnostics, but there is a form of catharsis. Again, we go back to Nana. She had to go down and get her ass kicked to really reach her potential. Yeah, she really did. And, you know, once you've kind of experienced that, and this is something that I talk about all the time, is that, you know, as Glennon Doyle says, she uses the word brutal, right? Brutal and beautiful. And it's, it is that experience that we must go through, you know, to kind of have the awakening. And of course, it's it's never over. You know, it's the good news and the bad news, right? It's like the work is never done. And yet, coming back to life on this side of it, it's like such a different experience, you know, where I am, you know, there is this sense of oneness and this deep appreciation and holding that tension in the middle like, you know, it's just become my goal to extend, you know, the time in which I'm not in the trance, because we all go back in and out of it. But it's like, how, how much longer can I stay out of it? That's where I feel it is like my new, my new game, you know, that I play is like, how long can I just hold, you know, hold the tension of the opposites without lapsing into the trance again. And, uh, so yeah, and I want my uh, listeners to be able to follow you, know you, know your work. So please take the opportunity, Miguel, to invite, to lead them where you'd like them to go. I know you have a Patreon. Tell us more, and then we can let you have your day back. Yeah, I would. My webpage is thegodabovegod.com. And that has all the resources, uh, my podcast, videos, books, articles, any contact form if you want to reach out. Uh, or you can just type um, Aeon Byte, A-E-O-N. Next letter is Byte, B-Y-T-E. And uh, it should pop up on your uh, search engine. And yeah, just go there and you'll find all these nice little heresies that I've created. So good. Yes, heretics. I love them all. Good. All right. Well, and thank you again just for everything. I just so appreciate the tremendous value you've brought to my life over the years. And for our listeners, we will be sure to put all of Miguel's links and the many resources that he mentioned in the show notes. And hopefully we'll get a chance to have him back on soon. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always, more to be revealed.